All right, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this new season where we focus with believers all across the globe to consider the sending of your one and only son into the world that we might have life. And so, God, we celebrate and we say thank you for the life that you have given us in Jesus Christ, the life that you offer and extend to us even today. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us attentive hearts, Lord, minds that pay attention to who you are, Lord, what you have done for us in Jesus Christ and by the sending of your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, we want to live lives that reflect and honor you uh, this week and throughout this season that we meditate on his coming. So, Father, we thank you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Our kids can head up to be with our team in Redemption Kids. And I would like to invite the rest of you to open your copy of God's life-giving word to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 14 this morning, starting in verse 13. And uh, as you turn there, let me welcome all of our new guests today, whether you're with us for the first time or back for a second or third time joining us online. Uh, we would love for you to go to your app store and download our church app. Uh, and you can fill out the digital connect card that there, that's there on the home page. Uh, we would love to follow up with you sometime this week, just thanking you for joining us in worship. Well, uh, as we consider the coming of Christ in this Advent season, we celebrate the fact that God sent his one and only son into the world to be the light of the world. We read about this in the prophecy. We just lit the prophecy candle. We read about this in the prophecies of the Old Testament all throughout, but particularly in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, where it says that the people who were dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And then it goes on to talk about the work of God's coming deliverer, the one who's uh, would put the, the government of God on his shoulders and execute justice and righteousness and bring God's peace and counsel to our lives. And so this morning as we wrap up our teaching on uh, spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians, I want to pose this truth to you that connects the coming of Jesus as the light of the world with how we live as believers in Jesus today who are seeking to live out our faith and exercise spiritual gifts. And that is this. Without light, we would have no spiritual sight. It takes light to activate sight. And you know this, of course, in, in the physical realm, when you wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, your eyes are open, you can't see anything because all of the lights are out and there's no light outside. Just as we need light, whether the natural light of the sun or artificial light through electricity, just as we need light in the physical realm for our physical sight, so we need God's light for our spiritual sight. And if you follow Jesus, what the Bible says is you have received the miracle of spiritual sight. We could fast forward several chapters to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, after it says that Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those yet to believe in Jesus 
He says, hey, but if you follow Jesus, something different has happened for you. For God, verse 6, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown his light into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you follow Jesus, you have spiritual sight. And this spiritual sight helps you navigate all of the complexities and the difficulties and the opportunities of our lives. And what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 14 as he teaches on spiritual gifts. What is a spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is a spirit-empowered ability to bring a blessing to other people, to build up the church and to uh, move forward God's mission in the world. But there's a great irony that we discover as we read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and that is this. Just because someone has the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that they always view spiritual gifts through spiritual eyes. And what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to to do is to view the spiritual gifts through their spiritual eyes that God has empowered by his Holy Spirit. You see, they had a faulty perspective of many of the spiritual gifts. And listen, if we have a faulty perspective, it will lead us to a faulty practice. As one of my pastors said growing up, our theology, what we think about God, our theology always affects our duology. You, you follow me there? That wasn't funny. It was funny to me when it was 10. It was like, that's kind of funny, you know? It's like, oh, because duology is not a word. And it's like, like, what we think about God affects how we live on the daily. That's what they meant by that. So listen, for the 12th Sunday this year, can you believe it? I did, I did the math. I counted again. For the 12th Sunday this year, we are going to spend time on a Sunday morning examining God's truth about spiritual gifts because we want to have a proper, mature perspective that leads us to proper, mature living. So my encouragement for us today is simply this, to see the gifts of the Spirit through spiritual eyes. See the gifts of the Spirit through spiritual eyes. I want to give you three encouragements as we work through what is really a complex chapter on gifts of tongues and prophecies and everything that goes with it. So pay attention today. I'm going to do my best for us. So number one, here's the first encouragement for us. We want to see the diversity of God's gifts and be thankful. See the diversity of God's gifts and be thankful. Follow along as I read verses 13 through 19 for us. Paul writes this, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position 
of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul begins in verse 13, and he says, therefore, therefore one who speaks in a tongue. In other words, what he is about to say about speaking and singing and praying in tongues is built upon what he just said, which if you go back to verses 1 through 12, and especially 6 through 12, what you're going to find is he's emphasizing the value of prophesying in the church because they are in words that everyone else can understand. And so he uses a number of examples to say, listen, if you're praying in a tongue, which is a language that is unknown even to the speaker, much less the people around them, but is understood by God, that this is more valuable in the church setting. Prophecy is more valuable in the church setting because... Tongues cannot be understood by everyone else. So that's why he says in verse 13, if you are speaking in a tongue, you should pray that you may interpret. And so so if, as, as we're even if we're praying privately in a tongue or singing privately in a tongue, Paul says it's good to pray that you can interpret. But, but even if, if not, especially if this is, any kind of spoken tongue in a public setting, it should not be spoken unless there is someone else there who has the gift of interpretation who can explain what is being uttered as a thanksgiving to God. And so that's why Paul then in verses 14 through 17 goes on to say, and this is summarizing, but he says, I am going to pray and sing with my spirit. In other words, pray and sing in a tongue that I don't understand but is understood by God, but that's not all I'm going to do. I'm going to pray with my mind also. I'm going to sing with my mind also. And so there are a few important lessons that we need to take away from this section. Number one, Paul commends tongues primarily for our private devotion before God and prophesying for the public gathering of the church. He says tongues should only be addressed publicly to others if there is an, an, an interpreter or an interpretation, which would then make it analogous to prophesying. But then number two, I think this is important for us because I know many of you have questions. We all have questions about tongues and the New Testament has a lot to say but not everything to say. So we all have questions about what tongues are and how do they work, okay. But one of the things that Paul teaches us is that we need to make sure we understand that there is a distinction between our spirit, our inner person, and the, our mind, which is also part of our, our inner being, okay. And so why I highlight this is, is because of this. In our Western culture, okay, we live in the West. We live in, uh, you know, post-enlightenment where if something cannot be immediately understood by 
our minds, if, if it doesn't add up rationally, then we are tempted to reject it as, oh, that can't be true, that can't be good, that can't be healthy. And what we learn here, and, and, and part of this is that in our, in our Western culture, we are uncomfortable with the idea of mystery. I mean, and if we are uncomfortable with mystery, what we need to step back and admit is that we're going to be uncomfortable with God because God is very mysterious. And what the Bible says about God and the existence of God and how God created the world and the miraculous ways that God works and God the Son entering into the world through a virgin, these are all mysterious truths. And so we need to leave room for the mysterious and because we're tempted to dismiss that which is mysterious then we might say oh we couldn't be strengthened in our spirit if our minds can't understand what is going on but as i highlighted a couple of weeks ago listen Praying or singing in tongues allows our spirit, our inner person, to commune with God in a unique and immediate way. And so please, again, listen. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. We are not setting the, aside the mind as unimportant. If we didn't have our minds engaged when it came to the truth of God, we would have no way to know God, to know who he is, to know what he uh, wants for us, to know the paths of life that he wants to lead us on. So we are very rational creatures and we are very about knowledge and, and the truth of God's word. And yet, what Paul is saying is just because something can't be understood rationally doesn't mean that it is not spiritually beneficial. And you say, well, Pastor Tanner, I've never spoken in tongues, so I can't verify that, and I don't have that experience, or at least I haven't had that experience yet. And so, I mean, I guess I'll have to take Paul's word for it, but, you know, I don't have any other evidence to verify that this is actually true. I would say, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Just think about your life. Do you ever listen to the power of music? And in the power of music... Do there always have to be lyrics for your spirit or soul to connect with the beautiful sounds that God has created and made? Or, or what about this one, perhaps more relevant? Um, what if, and this would be very odd because God has made us to relate with words verbally, but if you just imagine yourself, what, three days ago? Saturday, Friday, Thursday, yeah, three days ago on Thanksgiving, and can you just imagine yourself sitting at home by yourself? I hope that was not anyone's experience in Redemption Hill. I know how different ones were having parties and Friendsgiving and inviting other people and new people. And that is awesome. That's what the church is all about. But if we can just imagine this thought experiment of a person sitting at home by themselves on Thanksgiving with no one around. Do you think that person... If they were just able to enter a home and be in the presence of other people who love them without even saying a word, do you think that might not do something to their spirit or their soul? 
gifts of the power of community and it moves us. God, listen, God made us with minds. That's part of how we are made in his image. But he also made us with spirits that connect to his spirit and are movable and able to be affected. And so Paul says, listen, whatever the gift, this is the third lesson, whatever the gift whether it's tongues or prophecy or any other gift, and wherever it is practiced, whether in church or in a small group or wherever, as long as it's consistent with Scripture, listen, it should all be reasons for gratitude. Paul uses the word Eucharisto. It's where we get the word Eucharist. Sometimes we call the Lord's Supper uh, communion or the Eucharist, which just means giving thanks. We give thanks to God for the sacrifice of Christ when we participate in the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Paul uses the word Eucharisto three different times in verse 16, 17, and 18. And he says that, that when we give thanks in the public setting, what we want to do is give thanks in a way that someone around us can say what? Oh, we really got to look at this redemption hill because we're still growing in this one. Okay, so can I read verse 16 again one more time? Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of outsiders say? Amen. Amen. Here it is in the Bible once again. Can you believe it, fam? That people in the church were talking to one another. And when someone said something that's good or true about God, someone else would say, Amen. Amen. Which means, yes. Which means, I agree. Which means, that is certainly true. And so let's keep growing, Redemption Hill. I know we're sometimes, we're so rational. We the, the process and think, and it's like, oh, we missed the opportunity to say amen. But can we be a little more ready when Pastor John or Pastor Reddy or Pastor Tanner has something that is true and moves your heart to say amen? amen. We'll even take a preach pastor, all right? We'll just, anything is good. Anything is good. Even nonverbal nods. Or better than nothing, all right? So this is what Paul is, he's, again, highlighting the value of prophecy because it's understandable. And then it's as if Paul can almost hear an objection from the anti-tongues crowd when he goes on and they might say, see, people aren't being built up with your tongue speech, so let's just do away with tongues. If other people don't are built up, then just... Do away with tongues, and how does Paul respond? He shuts that down real quick in verse 18. He says, well, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. I mean, if it's, if it's good enough for the apostle Paul, the Damascus road met Jesus Paul, then it should be good enough for the church. And when he says, thank you, and when he, thank you, wow, that was that touched me on the inside down deep. Um, when, when, when Paul is saying, I thank God more than all of you, it seems, I think he's probably thanking God that he probably actually does speak in tongues more fluently and frequently than all of them, but he's also probably speaking of the measure of the gratitude that he has before God that he has given him this gift. You say, Paul, you're being kind of arrogant here. No, no, no. Paul's not being arrogant or proud. He is bringing perspective that this is a good gift from God. But then as sure as he answers the objection from the anti-tongues crowd, he hears the anti-prophecy crowd, or at least the pro-tongues crowd, saying, well, see, Paul said he speaks in tongues. So let's just preach, pray, sing in tongues without restriction. And Paul comes back to his main point in verse 19, and he says this, speaking 
with, of the superiority of prophecy in the church, even with hyperbolic language, he says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather to speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And so you say, may, may say, well, Pastor Tanner, um, it's kind of new for me, and, you know, we've just been talking about this more and more over the past couple of years, especially this year as a church. So, so, like, how many people actually pray in tongues in our church? And my answer would be more than you think you do. And I, and I highlight that not to be like, oh, kind of mysterious or whatever. I highlight that to say, listen, people have been praying in tongues for, 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 for years in our church. And more and more people are. And God is giving that gift to more and more people. And it's never been an issue. It's never that I've known been practiced in an unbiblical way. And I just want to highlight that because some of you are like, this is new for me. It makes me nervous. And I've seen things on TV. And I've watched craziness in movies. And even the churches that I grew up in were kind of like out there. And they weren't practicing according to what Paul is saying. And I'm just saying we care about all of that. And we pay attention to all of that. But, but two other encouragements. Listen, if you, if you pray in tongues or sing in tongues or or it, it, the encouragement would be to use the gift. Use the gift to commune with God, to draw near to God, to strengthen your relationship with God. And if you don't yet pray or sing in a tongue, but you desire that, then ask God. Ask God for the gift and keep asking. Pray and pray with others. Who knows if he might give you that. And so first we need to see the diversity of God's gifts, tongues and prophecy. Be thankful for them both as well as all of the other gifts that Paul has been talking about in 1 Corinthians and the rest of the New Testament. But that's not all. Not only do we want to see the diversity of God's gifts and be thankful, number two, we want to see the powerful effect of God's gifts and be expectant. Look at verses 20 through 25. You got to pay attention because Paul gets a little complicated here. He says this, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even they will not listen to me says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart's heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. So what is Paul doing here as we think about seeing the powerful 
effect of God's gifts, and being expectant. Well, number one, again, verse 20 tells us that he wants us, what, that, that seeing the spiritual gifts through spiritual eyes, he wants them to have a mature view. That's why he says in verse 20, do not be children. Don't be like my four-year-old Titus, all right? He's a child. He's pretty cool, but he has a lot to learn, all right? Don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil. Be innocent toward that which is evil, but in your thinking about me and the things of me and the ways of the Spirit, be mature. And so to continue to highlight the value of prophesying in the church gathering over against tongues, he lays out this argument from the Old Testament. And what we have to do is really hone in on two interpretive keys that will help us understand what Paul is communicating here in verses 21 through 25. Okay, so the first one is this. We need to understand that the word sign can be used both as a blessing, a sign of blessing, a sign of God's life, but it can also be used as a negative sign or a sign of judgment. Okay, so, so most of the time when we read in the New Testament signs and wonders, we see this all over the book of Acts. God was working signs and wonders through the church, through the apostles. People were amazed by the work of God, and they were hearing the gospel and believing in Jesus. These are positive signs. These are signs of life, signs of blessing. But here, Paul, as he's talking about tongues being a sign for unbelievers, he is not using it in a positive sense, a sign of blessing or a sign of life, but he is using it as a sign of judgment. How do we know? He says this, and again, he's speaking primarily to those that are speaking and not controlling, which the gift of tongues can be controlled. I don't know if you think like the Holy Spirit just comes on you and you can't control it and it's like out of control. Okay, that's not, because he says, if you speak in a tongue and there's no interpreter, what? Shh. Be quiet. It can be controlled. And so if you were speaking in a tongue that is not understandable nor interpreted, what this becomes is a sign of judgment to those yet to believe, and this is exactly like what is happening in the prophet Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. What does it say there? By people of strange tongues. Actual people coming into the land of Israel who have foreign languages, strange tongues. And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, declares the Lord. And so who were these people of strange tongues? The people of strange tongues were the Assyrian army who God raised up and allowed to come into the land of Israel as a sign of his judgment, as, as, a, as a sign of his discipline to call the people back to listen to him and follow his ways. And so just as if we were to listen to uh, a conversation between two people who speak another language and we don't speak that language, how does it make you feel? Like, we all have, we live in Boston, right? So we all have this experience. It, it makes you feel a little distant from the conversation, right? It makes you feel a little distant from the relationship. 
And this is what Paul is saying. When you pray or speak in an unintelligible tongue that, that there is no interpretation and therefore an unbeliever hears it, what is it doing? It is actually making them more distant from God, which is not drawing, causing them to draw near to God to understand the gospel, but it is saying, these, these crazy Christians in Corinth, man, they're out of their mind. I'm not coming back here. I can get this mess down at the pagan temple. That's how tongues are a sign of judgment for unbelievers. And this is a powerful effect that we do not want. But, he says, prophecy is primarily a sign. It's a positive sign for the benefit of believers. And why is that? Well, Paul's talked about it all throughout 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, that it builds us up. It strengthens us. That the that prophesying can uh, strengthen and encourage and comfort us. But then, if you read carefully, you kept reading in verses 24 and 25, because when he says that prophesying is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers, he starts talking about how prophesying can have a positive effect in the life of unbelievers. I mean, it seems to be a clear contradiction from one sentence to another. Paul, like, sheesh, what are you doing to us with all these things you're saying? Which brings us to the second interpretive key. At times, we, as we read the scriptures in context, we need to understand that there are times where we should insert the word primarily. That, 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 that prophesying is primarily not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. And for the reasons I just stated, that prophesying builds up the church and strengthens and encourages and comforts the church. But there are times, just like Tongues can be a sign, not just for unbelievers, but for believers in the church when there is an interpretation. It's not that signs are, uh, tongues are never a sign for believers. If there's an interpretation, it's a very powerful sign for believers. So Paul, I believe, is saying that primarily prophesying is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. But there are times where there is a word of prophecy, maybe even specifically to a non-believer, and they discover, wait, wow, God knows these things about me, and he actually loves me, and he is inviting me to know him, love him, and worship him. And this is how we should pray. This is how we should pray. I want to encourage you, listen, if you don't already do this, here is just a, a pastoral encouragement for you, okay? When you drive to church or catch the bus to church or whatever, okay, pray that God would move powerfully. When you're going to community group and you show up with 10 to 20 to whatever uh, number of people in a home, would you pray that God would move powerfully and move powerfully through the gifts of the Spirit? Because listen, God wants to bring through his Holy Spirit a conviction to us all. 
He wants us to worship. If you're not a believer yet, God wants you to know how much he loves you, how real he is, the life that he offers you through Jesus Christ to the point that one day you are doing exactly what it says in verse 25, that you are falling on your face and worshiping and saying, God is real, God is really among these people, and I want in on this too. So I believe those two interpretive keys really help us. And I could say some other things about the, 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 the signs specifically in Isaiah that the word of prophecy, I think this is another uh, just legitimate understanding. Let me say it real quick. That the sign for unbelievers in Isaiah that he's, that he's quoting was a negative sign for the unbelievers, but it was actually a positive sign for the believers because the word of prophecy was meant to draw them back to God. In fact, that may be a better interpretation, and I probably should have made that number two instead of 2B. But nevertheless, if you have questions, meet me after the service. There's a lot going on here in the passage. So, so Paul says this, like, see the diversity of God's gifts and be thankful. See the powerful effect of God's gifts and be expectant. But then finally he wraps up with the rest of the chapter. And he says, see the order of God's worship and be faithful. Let's read verses 26 through 33 together. Paul goes on and he says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done. Here it is again, what? For building up, for strengthening one another. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And each in turn and let someone interpret. But there, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others Weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so what we have here in verses 26 through 33, and really the, the chapter as a whole, Paul is addressing the church when the church comes together to worship. And verse 26 actually gives us one of the clearest pictures of what like, life was like in the first century church, that most of the experience for followers of Jesus was not coming into a big room like this with hundreds of people, okay? It was coming into smaller rooms, actually in homes, and worshiping really what is like our community groups that meet on Tuesdays and Wednesday nights. And why was that? Well, it's probably because of the presence of persecution, that, that it was safer at times for them to gather in homes. But also, it was just the way that the church was rapidly expanding from person to person, group to group, home to home. And I love what Paul says here and, and what this teaches us about worship, what it teaches us when we come together. I hope you're in a group. If you're not in it yet in a group, check one out Tuesday or Wednesday this week, all right? But, but what does he say? He says, when you come together, what? Each one, can we say each one? 
Each one has what? A hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So, so what this teaches us is this. What we come together not to spectate, but to participate. And this is one of the dangers of coming to worship on Sundays in what is literally a theater with, you know, uh, what do you call these seats? Uh, stadium seating, right? Stadium seats and a stage. And it's like, hey, you're here to watch the music team perform and the preacher to preach and perform. And it's like, no, this is not a performance. This is worship. This is, we're, we're in this together. And so, yes, this, this should be happening on Sunday when we come together and we mix it up before and after the service and we participate and we're bringing our prayer and our heart and our song to God together and, and, and after the service. But especially, listen, our groups, that's why our groups are so important on Tuesday and Wednesday night, that we come together and we are not just there to receive. It's great to receive. But we are not just there to receive. We are there to give to give to others, to come and bring the gifts of encouragement and care and compassion, to bring the gifts of mercy, to bring the gifts of prophecy and teaching. All of these gifts coming together, leadership, hospitality, all of them coming together when we come together. So Paul expects that Christians, followers of Jesus, who all have the spirit of God to each one has been given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good are coming together to contribute to the whole, to make the church beautiful and built up. But then after he says that, he says, okay, when you come together, here are the principles for tongues, here are the principles for prophecy. And they're really not that complicated, maybe contrary to our expectation. He says, if you, if you speak in a tongue, verse 27, this, look, two observations here. When he says, if any speak in a tongue... First, this implies that Paul did not assume that in every gathering of the church that people would be speaking in tongues. Just that there, that may be on occasion. But then number two, the type of tongue that he is talking about here is not private prayer, what has been his primary focus all throughout chapter 14, but speaking for others to hear. And if we are speaking in tongues for others to hear, there are three clear stipulations. Number one, there should be only two or at three most. So in a church gathering of worship, there should never be what Paul says. I can't explain why, but he says there should never be more than two or three. Probably because there's a lot to process and hear and pray through. And so we can only handle so much at one time. When the Holy Spirit is moving in the ways that he does. Oh, it's so awesome. All right. Then number two, these people who are speaking in tongues with inter interpreters, they should speak one at a time. There shouldn't be multiple people speaking in tongues for everyone else with multiple interpretations going on at the same time. Which then leads us to the third stipulation. There must be an interpreter. And if there is not an interpreter there, someone that we know has the gift of interpretation, then the people with the gifts of tongues should stay silent. That's principles for tongues. What about principles for prophecy? Verse 29, Paul says to limit the number of prophetic revelations, again, likely to be able to weigh out what is being shared with the church. 
Number two, he says in verses 31, 30 and 31, that we should speak one by one, just like with tongues, to eliminate confusion and maximize learning and encouragement. And then three, he says in verses 32 and 33, to practice humble mutual submission so that worship is orderly and peaceful. And so it is, it is to be expected that people are going to prophesy when we come together, that, that this would happen more and more as God gives the gift of prophecy. And, and by the way, I'm really, in terms of leaning toward like, can everyone prophesy? I, be, I believe right now, I believe anyone can prophesy, give a word that is given by God, and yet maybe not have the gift of prophecy. Just like everyone can share the gospel and evangelize, but not have the gift of evangelism. So that seems to be what Paul is encouraging here, especially from the early part of chapter 14 and even right here in verses 26 through 33. But, but as we, how do we receive a, a, a prophetic word? Well, receiving a prophetic word starts with hearing God's voice. We learn to walk with God. We learn to hear his voice. And we hear God's voice for ourselves all the, hey, go here, don't do that. This is what I'm telling you. That's consistent with my word. And we've given a little tool we borrowed from another church, just an acronym, to develop an ear to hear. That means we are expecting to hear from God. We're asking God to speak to us specifically with specific direction. And when he does, we are in a posture of reverence. Did you guys that? Expect, ask, revere. We're in a posture of reverence that says, God, whatever you speak to us, that's what I'm going to do. Because let me tell you, I've received many prophetic words over the past five years. And there are times where just one word absolutely wrecks my life. To the point where if I just took that one phrase of that one instruction from that one person who God was speaking through just because he wanted to send me a timely, specific message for me to lean into, I'm telling you, I could take that one word and live it out for the rest of my life and probably never, ever need another prophetic word except sometimes God just wants to give us more. So the point there is what we, we're in a posture of reverence. Like, God, whatever you say, I'm just saying, like, be careful what you ask for is my point. Oh, God, I want to prophesy. I want a prophetic word. Do you want to obey? God, help us. That's receiving a prophetic word. But then what about sharing a prophetic word? Here are just a few encouragements. Number one, we share with love and humility. Okay, we are God, when God speaks, it's perfect. When we speak what we believe is from God, hopefully it's on point and accurate, but we're not perfect. So we come with humility and, and we never, listen, never say, please never say, God told me to tell you. It's just, it's just not helpful because you could be wrong. You could have misheard. But say something like, I believe God wants me to share something with you. That's humble. That's loving. Number two, encourage them to prayerfully consider. In other words, to weigh out. Paul uses this word in verse 29, to weigh out what is being shared to talk about it with wise followers of Jesus, and to always weigh it against Scripture. And we've given five filters for weighing a prophetic word in the past. Um, but then point them to Jesus, tell them that you'll be praying for them, and make yourself available to just pray with them and encourage them as you both move forward. That's receiving a prophetic word, that's sharing a prophetic word. But then Paul goes on, and he gives some instruction here 
that can strike us as confusing, if not offensive, in verses 33 through 35. This is what he says. After he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. He says this, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything to desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And so I I think we would all agree here, this language is very strong. And I think if you're a woman hearing these words, my working assumption is that to one degree or another, you find these words offensive. I mean, Paul says women should keep silent. They're not permitted to speak. It's shameful for one to speak in church. And I'm just like, Paul, listen, if, if that's what you really mean, and any man said that at Thanksgiving dinner on Thursday, it's like, that dude probably isn't eating, right? Can I get an amen, women? Amen. amen. That's right. So, so what, like, either Paul's words mean what they sound like on the surface, or there's something more going on here. And we believe there's more going on here. So let me share what these words can't mean, which I'm certain of, and then let me share what I believe they do mean, which I'm pretty confident of, right? So, so number one, Paul can't mean that women are never permitted to speak in church, all right? Just please hear that, Pastor Tanner, God. Paul can't mean that women are never permitted to speak in church. Why is that? Well, we've been journeying from 1 Corinthians 1 all the way to chapter 14. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, he says what? If a woman prays or prophesies in the church gathering. Now, I'm not the smartest dude in the world, but I know to pray or prophesy requires speaking audible words, right? So Paul, so Paul can't, thank you, he can't mean that, not to mention, listen, this is so important, this means so much to my heart, and I've shared it over and over again this year, not to mention that everything that he is saying in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, would basically have to be discounted in a major way, because what did Paul say in, I've said it like two or three times in this sermon, to each is given, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each one, I mean, Paul is speaking what? To the church. Men and women, followers of Jesus. Each one has to include men and women. And of those gifts that he goes on to highlight, many of them are what? Speaking gifts. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I don't believe that there is one of the roughly 20 gifts listed in the New Testament that is not for both men and women. I just, I just, I don't, I don't see how it's not given in Acts 2, backs that up when the Holy Spirit comes and he empowers the church that, that your, your, your men and women will prophesy and dream dreams and have revelations and tell the good news of the Christ so that more and more people can believe in him. This is the job for both men and women. 
And, and let me get a little technical here. If you say, well, what about Ephesians chapter 4, the apes gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Some people would say, well, shepherds refers to an office of pastor. I personally don't think so. I think these are gifted leadership positions. I think that apostles, missionaries going into new territory, starting new works. I think it's for men and women. I think prophecy we see in the New Testament, Agabus' daughters, Acts chapter 21. I've talked about this before. Men and women are prophets. We see evangelists both, surely, certainly, to share the good news of Jesus. Shepherding gifts to care for people and offer compassion and extend God's love. Surely that would be for men and women as well as teaching can be both men and women, in the proper setting. Which is why then, if you ask, well, Pastor Tanner, doing your best, what do you think Paul is saying here? This is, this is what he seems to be saying. Paul seems to be restricting authoritative evaluation of words of prophecy, about the words of prophecy, that require authoritative instruction. You say, well, why do you believe that? Number one, all of chapter 14 is what? It's focused on prophecy and tongues. And just a few verses earlier in verse 29, what did Paul say? Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So, so there, is, there has to be, anytime you receive a prophetic word, there has to be evaluation. There has to be weighing. There has to be a consideration. Is this from God? Is this for me? What does this mean? And there are going to be times when there is an evaluation going on that hopefully what? We are coming back and we're saying, hey, is this consistent with the Bible? Do we need to do some teaching on what this is and what God has said about this topic and how we apply it? And so it seems there that in this evaluation, there probably are times where there needs to be authoritative teaching and the role of teaching the entire congregation as we see in the New Testament, assigns that to qualified men who are pastors. And we see this consistent, not just in 1 Corinthians 11, what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 14, but also in 1 Timothy 2, where Paul grounds his instruction on teaching, not in the culture of first century, because a lot of times you're like, well, that was the first century. They were so patriarchal. They were so archaic. That can't be relevant for today. And we just say, well, wait. Yes, God has made us equal, but he's given us distinction in role and function in the leadership of the church. And so Paul grounds his argument not in culture, but in creation. So this is also consistent with the qualifications for pastors in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, not to mention how the Bible highlights the complementary role between men and women in the marriage relationships in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3. You say, well... Again, like this is like, this kind of feels like not 2022 and why would God do this? And well, two things here. Number one, if you know anything about redemption, we try to line ourselves up with what the Bible teaches. From where, whether we're last Sunday baptizing people, teaching on any doctrine, okay, we want to be as close to the scriptures as we can. But then number two, when we think about these, the leadership in the church family as well as the nuclear family, we see that God keeps coming back and saying, this is a reflection of who I am, which God being the triune God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. And oh, by the way, Jesus was never 
afraid or never had a problem submitting to the will, the authority of the Father. But listen, there is perfect equality. Listen to this, please. There is perfect equality between the Father and the Son, and yet there is distinction in role, yet they maintain perfect unity, harmony, and flourishing. And this is what it should look like in a healthy marriage, and this is what it should look like in a healthy church. And so I know that's a lot to absorb and take in if you've never been taught on these things before. It's been a while. But let me say two more things real quick, all right? Number one, I want to say again, I do not believe a woman is prohibited from speaking in worship. In fact, just to put our cards on the table, we are in the process of hiring a worship leader and we might hire a woman. We might. And all the women apparently are saying amen. And if you can sing and you're sitting on your worship leading talents, then come find me after the service. All right. So, um, so, so we believe Paul's concern here is over proper ordering and authoritative teaching because what he just said in verse 33, God is not a God of confusion but of peace. But now one more thing because I, I know this is touchy and this is sensitive and rightfully so. Rightfully so. But there is a temptation to allow two difficult verses to cloud the other 86 verses in chapters 12, 13, and 14 that are all about elevating and empowering not just the men in the church, but also the women of the church. Preach, Pastor Tanner. Preach. And that's what we want to do as pastors. That's what we want our church to be about. And the ways that you see that we can do that better, please hear me, we are all ears. We don't think we've arrived in this area. And we want to do a better job moving forward. So, with all of the complex questions of 1 Corinthians 14, tongues, prophesying, Signs for believers and unbelievers and this and that. And, and now this bit about order, you know, we might get lost in all of the heady questions and miss that God wants us to take these truths deep into our hearts and work them out in everyday life. Because this is where Paul lands at the end of chapter 14. And he says what? Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command from the Lord. Listen up. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Strong words. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. What Paul is doing here in these final verses is he's bringing everything he said to a conclusion. And he's saying, listen up, because I want you to apply this to your life. And I want you to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. And I want you to live them out every single day so that the people that you love around you can be strengthened and built up. And so that more and more people in the city of Boston can know how much I love them. Get to work. Be about the business. Follow my plan. I'm going to empower you. 
And listen, let me speak from my heart for a minute. This is not in the notes. I would hate to get to the end of 2022 and for you to be in the same spot that you were at the beginning of 2022. What are the gifts? Do I have any? If I do, oh man, God would never use someone like me. That thought breaks my heart. Because God has not gifted just a couple jokers who we call pastor. God has gifted his church. He has gifted his bride. He loves you more than you can imagine. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness and to be about his kingdom work wherever he places you. So I want to end with one little tool that I hope you will write down. I hope you will take with you. We're going to talk about this week in groups. And it's from a book called Miracle Work by Jordan Singh. He calls this his power equation. We can pick holes at it. We can find some things that might be imperfect as far as drilling down. But I think this is a helpful framework to consider. What he says this is this. There's an, his idea is this, that, that the amount of, look at this, authority, gifting, faith, and consecration we develop will combine to determine in large part the amount of supernatural power we have for ministry. So in other words, look at this. When we walk in the, what did Jesus say before he ascended to the Father? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He would not say that if he wasn't giving it to his disciples. God wants us to walk in his authority. We have the very power of God in us and with us. And so how do we cultivate authority? We grow in authority by obeying what God says. By doing what he says. Doing the last thing. God said to pray for someone, pray for someone. God said encourage someone. Give them a word of encouragement. Even if you're not sure it's going to encourage them, take a risk. But not just authority, gifting. We, we see that we grow in gifting as we practice and use the gifts. So whatever gift that God has given you, don't sit on it and let it get dusty, but move out and serve somebody. But it's not just authority and gifting. It's also faith. Growing in faith comes from taking risks, from stepping out and saying, God, I'm not sure about me, but I'm more sure about you. So I'm going to trust you in this moment that I'm, this person's hurting. I'm going to go over and I'm going to lay my hand on them as an act of love and as a sign of your authority. And I'm going to pray, God, that you would touch them in Jesus' name. And you took that risk. And maybe God heals them in an instant. Maybe it's the next time you pray. But we take risks in Jesus' name. Not just healing, teaching, whatever. Whatever. And then finally, consecration. We grow in consecration through devotion, worship, prayer, fasting, all of these ways that we draw near to God and set ourselves apart to say, God, my life belongs to you. As you grow in walking in the authority of Christ, and you grow in using your spiritual gifts, and you grow in faith, taking risks in his name, and you grow in that consecration, you will see more power, more power. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. Anybody can talk. I love Jesus. Oh, our church loves the city. I'm all about God's business. Where's your power? Where's my power? The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. So I just want to lead us in a time of prayer. That we'll call on God and say, God, because you have given me your Holy Spirit, through this broken, empty, sinful vessel, and you've given me authority to walk as Jesus walked and gifts to serve other people. God, I'm asking you to fill me up with faith to take risks in your name as I live set apart for you, and I am asking for more power. God, if my power level is on two, God, give me 2.5 this week. I'll take whatever you give me, God. I'm telling you, if, if we will get a church full of people that are willing to pray like this and live like this, our church will not be the same a year from now. I promise you. I promise you. I don't say that just to say it, all right? I say it because the, the word is true. So let's ask God and just pray into this as we prepare to respond and sing. Father, we ask, God, we ask that in all of this, all that we've heard about the gifts this year and how you work through your Holy Spirit, Lord, we thank you for the gifts that are very present in our church, Lord, that we see in operation day by day, week by week. God, we thank you for every single person in this church, every person that is to come as we wrap up this year and we move into a new year, God. But God, we do ask and we right now earnestly desire more. There's always more with you, Lord. There's always more people to love, more people to serve, more people to help. And so God, would you move us out in the name of Jesus to live with the power of the Holy Spirit not so that people can say, wow, what an amazing church. Those people are great. They're so strong. Whatever. But so that people can say, wow, what a great God. God is really among those people. What they have, I want. And just like they follow Jesus, I want to follow Jesus too. So God, we call on your name. We ask for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.